Listener Production. A warning. The second part of this episode references sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732 and the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Welcome to Crime Insiders Forensics. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, you'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. This week, we go behind the scenes of a remarkable breakthrough in an international cold case uncovered right here in Australia. There were injuries that were consistent with some sort of suspicious activity. We also hear about the innovative research that could transform the way police identify perpetrators of sexual abuse, labelled the Sexome Project. And that's not always just about finding the cellular material or the DNA of the offender on the victim. It might actually be something totally unrelated. In 1994, a homicide victim was found floating in the North Sea off the coast of Germany after being weighed down with unusual iron objects. With no match to missing persons and no ID... He's only ever been known by his nickname, The Gentleman. Brendan Chapman is the Chair of Postgraduate Forensic Science and Director of Cold Case Review at Murdoch University. To start, Brendan tells us how he became involved in this ongoing homicide investigation. A number of years ago, myself and and a colleague from criminology, uh, Dr David Keatley, established a group at Murdoch. The group is a cold case review group and because David and I both have a lot of experience from working in cases, from my background in forensics and um, in policing and, and David's in criminology and criminal profiling, we um, brought together this group because the biggest limitation we have in any cold case or investigating a cold case is is really people power and you're really looking for the needle in a haystack. So the one thing we have as a university is people power. And so David and I embarked on this mission to use our university students to help us in working on cold cases, but also obviously in return, they're getting some really invaluable experience. And so we work on cold cases that are brought to us by law enforcement, both domestically and abroad, and also through um, advocacy agencies. And we work with groups like The Missing on the East Coast. And... um, we investigate these cases. And after the establishment of the cold case group, we came to meet with the German Police Academy of Lower Saxony, who have been operating their own in-house cold case review team for a number of years. For, For a number of years, they were the only published journal article on using students to um, investigate cold cases. So we came to talk to them and, um, through our connection with them and also an organisation in the UK, a not-for-profit called Locate International, we embarked on what became the first 
ICAP or the International Cold Case Analysis Project. So what this was is, is it's a program where uh, the university students, ourselves as the academics, plus um, experts from around the world, different countries, are working on cases that have been released to the German police academy by the German prosecutors to look at because the the assumption is that there's just no further work. We're at a dead end. Let's let's throw it over to the university and see what or the sorry, the police academy and let's see what they can do. So in twenty twenty two there was or twenty twenty one, sorry, my mistake, there was a case uh, and it was affectionately known as the North Sea Man case, and that's how we became involved in this. So the history of the North Sea Man, or how he's now been uh, dubbed the gentleman, is that in 94, this body was, was found floating in the, in the North Sea and was picked up by um, water police and recovered, and um, an investigation commenced. And with any investigation, we've got... Uh, an unknown deceased or an unknown victim, the first task really is is finding out who this person is. So that commenced as part of a normal forensic investigation. There was also the establishment of whether this is nefarious or not. And um, there was enough in the in the injuries and some of the other aspects of the gentleman's how he was, how he was found, I suppose that definitely definitely suggested that there was a criminal element to this. So a criminal investigation started uh, in Germany. We, they still didn't know who this person was. And of course, if you don't know who a victim is, it makes it really, really hard to try and identify an offender because a lot of the time people that are, that are murdered are murdered by someone known to them or, or at least somewhere within a, within a circle. And so the investigation continued and... Really, nothing came of it. it. It went cold within a couple of years in Germany, and then it largely sat on a shelf, probably just trickled along for a while with no further leads. He was never reported missing or didn't fit any missing persons? No. Any of that part of the world, no missing persons register? All of that work um, would have been undertaken in that, those initial couple of years, and um, he just didn't didn't come back to anything. And I, and I suppose the situation's a bit different in Europe to here in Australia. We've got we've got a handful of police forces that all talk quite closely together. There's a shared missing persons register and stuff like that. Once you get into places like Europe, I suppose, where you're, you're working across not only state lines, but different country lines and different language barriers and all sorts of stuff, I suppose some of that probably breaks down a little bit. But at the end of the day... Um, the poor gentleman was never identified. Can you please just outline what did the police have to go on when they found that body and they began their investigation? So the the, the main things that they had to go on were, were things like what, what the gentleman was wearing. Um, so the clothing that he was in, a lot of it was sourced or, or had probably been um, purchased from... England or, or the U- within the UK at least. So that gave some indication of where the gentleman may have come from. And in fact, that's the origin of the name because um, the, it, it wasn't, I suppose, cheap clothing. It was reasonably top shelf clothing. And so his, his attire was... A suit. 
it wasn't a suit, no, but it was, but it was well well dressed enough to be gentleman esque, I suppose. But quite interestingly, the body was weighed down with cobbler's shoes, and a lot of your listeners probably wouldn't understand what that is, and we were, we were in the same boat. But these are basically like iron or steel shapes that that a cobbler would would form a shoe over so they're, they're kind of shaped a bit like a foot and they, they were used to weigh down the gentleman in order to to hopefully make him sink and that worked for a while so that was a, a really significant lead because that was quite an unusual aspect of what the police had to work on with the body and then the other parts, I suppose, are the biological. So there's the the gentleman himself. Now, the expectation was that he probably spent a couple of weeks in the North Sea. So the decomposition process that happens after we die, after all of all of us die, is leads to us becoming quite unrecognizable. And when you add a water body like floating around or being submerged in the water, that adds another element to it as well. So Visually, he wasn't particularly identifiable, but we always have other tools like DNA, for instance, that we can investigate to get some biological leads as well. And that was that was work that was done this twenty years later um, as part of the cold case project that we that we undertook. Something that struck me as interesting was he was purportedly six foot five or 196 centimetres. Um, you're tall, <laughs> but that's a, still a tall man. I'm pretty, I'm pretty much the same height myself. And, it, and yeah, yeah it's, it's tall enough to have strangers walk up to you on, in the street and say, hey, you're tall. Because you didn't notice it before yourself. Yeah, <laughs> it's something I've never noticed. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a, where we've gone back and forth on the height a little bit as, as a team because... We've got to be quite careful when you when you put out announcements or, or any any sort of call to the public and you say anything about how someone may or may not have appeared, then you've got to be really careful that you're not stopping people from reporting something because they they know someone and they remember them as oh but he was only about six foot and they said six foot five so nah it couldn't be him and then they don't they don't call in. So there's a really interesting balancing act that you need to that you need to play between not sharing something so specific about the person that it's actually going to limit your opportunity for for hearing from people. So we did have a really lengthy conversation conversation about the height because there's there's some varying ideas as well we've got about it because the shoes for instance and the clothing were quite indicative of of a of a quite a tall person. Some of the anthropology work that was done um, suggested he potentially wasn't as tall. So we have, well, not we, but some of the groups have, have discussed him as quite tall. And we still do think he was probably reasonably tall. But we've just got to be quite careful about suggesting exactly how tall. Because as you know, with any science, there's always a, an element of um, variation to that. What else was about the body? I mean, we, I'd love to get to the cobbler's feet in a bit more detail, but what else on their initial findings was there physical evidence that this was likely to be a murder? So there were there were injuries that were consistent with 
some sort of suspicious activity. Now, we can rule out that they were um, post-mortem injuries, so, so injuries that were obtained after death or while the body was in the ocean. So we know, we know that these injuries aren't related to that, and they had to have happened before or very closely before the, the death of the gentleman. And they are of such a nature that they, they really suggest nefarious intent. I can't go into any more detail about that because while this case is old and it's not Australian, it's, it still is an active case. So we've, we've got to treat it just like any police investigation would as making sure that there's still some, some information that we, we don't let loose. So that and then in hand with the cobbler's feet, which there's not really any other reason why there would be weights tied to a person other than to deliberately submerge them, I really paint quite the picture of this being a homicide. My mind goes straight to the cobbler's feet. It's a very unusual thing to weigh somebody down with and definitely not everybody would have access to them. And, you know, in the 90s there was still factory-made shoes and handmade cobbler's shoes were probably not the norm necessarily. So the first thing that comes to my mind is were they a particular size? If they were a child's size or an adult size, does that help you narrow down potentially who would have access to cobbler's feet? We, we and, I mean, the, the subsequent investigations have spent quite a bit of time looking into the manufacture of those cobbler's feet and narrowing down, I suppose, the, um, the pool of opportunities from where they could have come. I'm not going to go into any more detail about that other than just to say that they, we, we, they've taken us a few places and they've opened up a few opportunities, but they certainly aren't, or have, well, I mean, the case is still, the case is still cold. So they certainly haven't been the smoking gun that we would have hoped, but you, you're right in the nineties, most of the world, it's not that long ago. Most of the world was buying Nikes and and Reeboks and, and whatever else. So, yeah, these these things weren't particularly common. Um, that that probably does vary a little bit around Europe being just inherently, I suppose, an older a, an older continent, and there's probably a lot more history there. Fine craftsmen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Obviously, you had to translate German documents around the investigation. You had to have someone reliably interpret and... In terms of languages and translations, that can often be difficult with very subtle changes, meaning potentially significant differences from language to language. A hundred percent right. And it's and it's probably one of the largest hurdles we have in working these cases. The team at, at the police academy are fantastic in translating documents. But when you it's one thing when you've got PDFs and electronic documents that you can run through text recognition and, and, and auto-translate and things like that. But with old case files, most of the, the documents are made in handwriting, which even if you're, you're working in the same language, are really difficult sometimes to read and decipher, um, having looked at Australian ones. And as a GP, you're one of the prime culprits for having terrible handwriting. Um, 
And um, excuse me for one second. <laughs> I was told that I probably should have failed medicine because my writing was legible. Oh well, that's <laughs> so there we go. You're the exception. Everyone always found my writing was legible. You're yeah. the exception. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's it's an incredibly difficult challenge. But the German Police Academy do their best in translating it. There's often some really interesting little um, pieces that just translate so oddly and they look completely out of place, just words that you think, what is, what is this? So what happened in 2021 when you were approached to become involved in this case? This was where the, the student group in, in consultation with David and I embarked on, on this case. And what they do is they, as part of the project, they hold regular meetings and at each of the meetings that they present um, leads and things that they found. And we kind of work through an iterative process of going through a whole range of things, um, looking into victimology, looking into the geography around um, the case, looking into the timeline of events that we know and what we don't know. And then the, the ultimate part of that is then also um, reporting and suggesting new opportunities to progress the case. And then the whole thing culminates with a presentation meeting with the German public prosecutors. And that's where um, the groups present opportunities for further work. Now, the opportunities for further work that came out of this case, well, firstly, they were that we wanted to do some more contemporary DNA analysis because there was some DNA analysis done back in the 90s. But then following that, the, the gentleman was was buried. And so that's that, that was the end of it. So we determined that there were new advances in DNA analysis and that we should go back and get a newer and better sample. And the other part of that was that we should look into some isotope analysis to see if it could give us any insight as to where the gentleman may have come from. And so after the presentation to the prosecutors, the investigation started to to gain a bit of momentum again and, and the gentleman was exhumed and, and some samples were taken from him for those further analyses. And the DNA part of it, um, a new DNA sample or a new DNA extract was generated and that new DNA sample was able to provide us with a, a contemporary DNA profile or I guess the, the, the same sort of DNA result as we would use for any criminal database. And so that, that meant that he could be searched against databases globally to see if his DNA matched DNA from anywhere else. After that long, where do you sample the DNA from? It's, it's pretty much bones. Um, you're, looking, you're looking for ideally the, the marrowy part of a bone because that part of the bone is really rich in cells and cells are what contain our DNA. So we're, we're ideally going in and we're looking for bone, like long bones like femur, your thigh bone, or even hips are good. We'll use whatever we can get, but obviously if we have the choice of a full of a full skeleton, then they're our best bet. And you mentioned isotopes. Can you define what, what are isotopes and why on earth would they be relevant in an exhumed body? This is a really interesting area. And it's, I mean, caveat here that 
stable isotope analysis or any isotope analysis is absolutely not my wheelhouse. So this was quite a, a, um, a new venture for me as well when we, when we started to look further into this. So basically, most people are familiar with the periodic table or with the elements or all of the things that make up things that we, that we have. And um, when you look at all of those different elements, some of them exist in different variations of each other and those different variations can be quite specific to different geographical regions one of the most common is carbon so carbon is in everything that we eat everything organic so we're full of carbon our food is full of carbon so your broccoli the starch in your broccoli contains carbon so you so you eat the broccoli the broccoli has grown, assuming we've got broccoli from Australia, it's been grown in, on an Australian farm and the carbon in that broccoli has come from the carbon within the land that, that the broccoli was grown on. So parts of, like this carbon cycles through the environment basically from the earth to the food to the person that eats the food and then it becomes part of us. And some of that becomes part of us and moves on and, and moves through, but some of the carbon finds itself into parts of us that persist for a long time. And the perfect example there is bone because our bones don't change. They, they grow over time and the bone is laid down. And when that bone is laid down, the carbon is embedded within it. So the broccoli that I begrudgingly ate as a kid um, has contributed to the carbon that lives within my bones. So if we can look at that carbon and analyze that carbon, it should have a isotope profile of the place that the broccoli originated from, all right? So this is what we did with the gentleman. Well, we didn't do it ourselves. Um, we, we suggested that this was an opportunity for analysis. And so the bone sample was sent off to some... Um, expert laboratories in Germany who do isotope analysis. And they did exactly that. They looked at a number of isotopes and it's not just carbon. They looked at some others. And from that analysis, they were able to conclude that a large proportion of the gentleman's life was probably spent in Australia. And this was just the, the complete mic drop moment where we were just like, what? So as you said, forensic science isn't always black and white and it's sometimes a beginning that will, with more and more research, more confirmed research, more reproducible research, then it becomes more standard science. What else are you working on? Most of my research revolves around unsolved cases. And the one thing I'm really, really passionate about in that, in that space is how we as forensic science can assist in sexual assault investigations. The progression from incident through to the courtroom and, and conviction um, in sexual assaults in Australia is absolutely woeful there's something like a, a 90 plus percent attrition rate from a 
offence to conviction. So the counter of that is saying that less than 10% of sexual assaults are, like go through to an actual conviction. Now that's like, that's horrific. So part of this problem is about reporting and making sure that people know how to report and do report. That's probably outside of our control in forensic science. But what we can control is the other part of that, whereby an incident is reported and there is an opportunity to collect evidence. There is an opportunity to identify a perpetrator and we just can't do it or, or aren't able to provide enough assistance. The really tricky aspect we have to sexual assaults is that in a lot of cases we have forensic evidence. We have DNA, male DNA from an offender or, or from a um, suspect, I suppose, or an accused. We have a result. We know who they are. But it comes down to consent. And, um, and the... He said, she said, he said, he said. Yeah, yep. And again, a lot of, like, I think most forensic scientists, most law enforcement look at that and say, well, we've done our thing, our job's done. We got the evidence, but, and now it's in the hands of the courtroom. It's now in the hands of others to then demonstrate consent or not. But I kind of take a different approach to that. And I think that forensic science can go further. I think that part of dem demonstrating consent comes down to witness testimonies. It comes down to the, the witness testimony of the victim and the witness testimony of the offender. And forensic science, the one thing that forensic science does incredibly well is it helps prove or disprove hypotheses or ideas, right? So if a victim is saying X, Y, and Z happened, and the offender is saying X and Z happened, then what can forensic science do to assist with Y? And that's not always just about finding the, the cellular material or the DNA of the offender on the victim. It might actually be something totally unrelated. It might be about proving other aspects of a victim's testimony through forensic science that add extra veracity to that testimony. Because the, the biggest defense strategy that, that is used in a courtroom to combat a victim's testimony is to pick holes in it and to, to try and find opportunities to discredit a victim. And so if we can add forensic evidence that add extra veracity or add extra impact to the testimony of the victim, then I think that's where we can, we can come into it. And there's, there's so many things we can do in that space beyond just the detection of a sperm cell or um, male DNA. So what in terms of your research is what I would call innovative and that I'm not familiar with being used as an investigative tool? This is the one that is probably one of the most exciting bits of research we're doing at the moment and we're calling it the sexome. And I had this idea years ago because there's this emerging area within forensic science of forensic microbiology, I suppose, or looking at bacteria to help us out in solving cases. So it kind of all began with soil mostly. And um, this is part of a much larger 
medical piece around the bacteria that lives on and within our body. Because we tend to think of bacteria as this, this dirty thing and it makes us sick, but there's so many bacterial species that live on us and within us that are actually critical to our survival. And importantly, it actually it lives on our genitals. And so everything in forensic science that we do, we kind of work on this premise of what's called Locard's exchange theory. And it's, it's a theory that when two things come into contact, like one thing leaves something on the other, there's a transfer both ways. And so the hypothesis for us was that, well, if there's bacteria within a vagina and there's bacteria on a penis, then when a vagina and penis come into contact, then penis bacteria goes on vagina and vagina bacteria goes on penis. Providing there's no condom used. Yes. Yeah. So there's, there's one caveat and, and I'll come back to that actually as well. So, um, that was the hypothesis. And, and so, so we started a project on it because we've got some, um, incredible microbiologists that I work with at Murdoch and I started an honors student, Ruby Dixon, a couple of years ago on this project. And, um, oh my God, it's, it's just gone crazy. We, for the first time, basically characterized the microbial community within the vagina and the penis like before intercourse or, or with no intercourse. And then when these couples had intercourse, we then sampled them again. And we were the first group in the world to report in a journal publication that we can detect the female bacterial genetics on the male, so on the penis and vice versa. How long after intercourse did you test? So this was our, this was our pilot study. So we were basically immediately. We, we kind of had a window of within, I think it was one hour just from memory. But I mean, realistically, not within the window of an actual sexual assault. But as a proof of concept, we demonstrated it. And so now this is exactly the further work we're doing. We're, we're now looking at a whole range of things in terms of temporally. So we're looking at how long does it take to reestablish? Because we look to other studies, um, we can look to the gut, we can look to the skin, and we know that a microbial community will reestablish. And it will reestablish in largely the same makeup as it was originally. So we all, it seems, have this reasonably controlled microbial community that is I won't say unique to us, but but quite specific to us, or at least different from from others, that kind of can be interrupted by sexual intercourse. And then we suspect, and this is exactly the work we're doing now, will take over a period of time reestablish. And so where this kind of goes is to an opportunity where even if we have DNA, we now have another kind of result to add to that or in situations where we don't have DNA. So for instance, if um, an offender doesn't ejaculate or, or they're vasectomized or, or, or for whatever reason, they don't leave behind DNA, that we are working on a new opportunity to identify them. And in the very, very small number of samples that we did that did use a condom, we could even see disruption, I'll just call it disruption, or a change to the vaginal microbiome, even in the absence of 
I suppose, what you'd call skin-to-skin contact. We're still trying to investigate whether that's an effective, like, just hand-skin microbiome or, or where it's come from, but we've kind of lifted the lid on this Pandora's box, and now, I mean, as with all science, there's now more questions than answers, and I'm not here today to guarantee that this is going to be the next big thing in sexual assault investigation, but our investigations to date are are really, really hopeful. Um, and we and we know we're on the right track because we know there's all these other groups around the world that are working on the same thing. So we're we're currently in the penis and vaginal space race um, globally to try and be the the next group that can demonstrate some further further work and we're right on the cusp of our next publication which really just validates um what we've already done with much stronger strength to the evidence so we're pretty confident that we can take this where it needs to go and in terms of research as with the isotopes there's obviously a lot more work to do but it's given hope for something new that may become another weapon in the arsenal of getting convictions for sexual assaults yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, this is where it's like really, really exciting being able to work in an environment where we can have so much impact. I mean, I've I've come from working in crime scenes with law enforcement, working in the laboratory for the state government labs, and the impact I have externally at a university and through the research I could do is just so much more far-reaching. So... I think it's really important that even if this goes nowhere, right, talking about it gives us the opportunity to have the discussion to the larger public and coming on things like like your podcast, for instance, and being able to reach thousands of people and just raise this discussion and have this conversation and kind of remove a lot of the, I think a lot of the barriers that people have to talking about sexual assault, it has a huge impact. On that note, thank you so much, Brendan, for joining us today. And I'm actually excited and hopeful for the first time in a long time about some forensic science that could really, really change the way investigations and convictions are achieved. Thank you. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. 